KRCL, 90.9 FM, HD1 in Salt Lake City, Ogden, and Provo. 96.7 FM in Park City, on the web at krcl.org. Listener-supported community radio. The Adopt-A-Native Elder program gathers food, clothing, and medicine donations for Navajo elders living traditionally on the land. To learn more about the nonprofit and its 33rd annual Navajo Rug Show and Sale online November 11th, visit anelder.org. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Nick Burns has the night off, but coming up later this hour, we're going to share a conversation that he and I recorded with author Steve Phillips just earlier today. Steve Phillips' new book is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. Stick around. Phillips can talk about how he charts the way forward for progressives and people of color to lead the way to end what he calls this civil war we're in, arguing that Democrats in particular must recognize the urgency of the moment we're in, as well as the nature of the fight we're in, a contest between democracy and white supremacy left unresolved after the original civil war. Great conversation coming up with Radioactive's Nick Burns and author Steve Phillips. And in a minute, Natalie R. versus the state of Utah, a lawsuit on behalf of Utah children who feel the adults of today have compromised the future of today's children when it comes to climate issues. I'm boiling it down, so we're going to dive deep with Natalie Roberts. Also, our Children's Trust, uh, John Mackin is with us to talk about the hearing that's coming up this week and also a rally after it. Depending on what happens, we're not sure what that rally will be, so stick around. First, some rallies and resources. If you go to krcl.org, under the Community Affairs tab, there's rallies and resources. There's also Go Vote. So, folks, do you know where your ballot is? Because Election Day is November 8th, first Tuesday in the first full week of November. And if you've got your mail-in ballot and you haven't sent it in, you need to have it postmarked by Monday, the day before the election. Otherwise, you need to take it to a voting center. So please pay attention. Any questions, vote.utah.gov. Your county clerk as well. Utah has 29 counties, and all the clerks can help you in your home county to figure out what's going on with your ballot. And Utah has same-day voter registration at the polls. And if you want to find out what kind of ID is accepted, go to vote.utah.gov. All right, rallies and resources. Let's see what is coming up going on right now at the Marmalade Branch of the Salt Lake City Library. It's Legacy of Leadership with PBS Utah. You still have time while you're listening to us to jump in the car and head on over there. Uh, PBS Utah and Better Days are honoring the legacy of Martha Hughes Cannon and celebrating her statue's new home in National Statuary Hall in Washington, D.C. As the first female state senator in the U.S., Martha paved the path for women today. A great panel conversation going on, hosted by PBS Utah host and producer Rayanne Christensen. Friday, Rekindling Harmony and Balance, Indigenous Healing from Trauma at the Salt Lake City Public Library. That's with Restoring Ancestral Winds. This conference, annual conference, will provide folks, attendees, with content relevant to serving Native American populations who live in urban areas and tribal nations. More details at rawconference2022.eventbrite.com. 
Also on Friday, abortion bans are a drag at the Eccles Theater. You can join Planned Parenthood Association of Utah for a night of glamour, drag, comedy, and glitter at the George S. and Dolores Story Eccles Theater. The evening will include a comedy set from the headliner, Sashir Izameda, a performance from local legends, the Saliva Sisters, and emceed by drag queen Tony James, plus a DJ set from KRCL's own Eugenie. Near total abortion ban on the books in Utah now is the time, they say, to stand with the community and fight to preserve our reproductive freedom and access to abortion care. Coming up this weekend, it's the 14th annual Red Rock Music Festival. Don't forget on Sunday, it is daylight savings time switch, so get ready to fall back. And then on Thursday, November 10th, KRCL Music Meets Movies, Rumble, the Indians Who Rocked the World at Bruvie's Cinema Pub, a selection from the 2017 Sundance Film Festival. Rumble puts on film the unknown history of how Native American musicians from Link Ray to Charlie Patton helped to shape popular music as we know it today, from folk to hip-hop. Inspired by Up Where We Belong, Native Musicians in Popular Culture, an exhibit at the Smithsonian Institution, the co-directors, Catherine Bainbridge and Alfonso Mayorana, tell this untold tale through interviews with contemporary artists like Wayne Kramer of the MC5, Tony Bennett, George Clinton, and Jackson Brown. Brewbies is 21 plus. There is one screening only, so doors at 6.30, come and get your tickets. Movie at 7.30. Dave John and Valine MC are hosts of KRCL's Living the Circle of Life. Sundays from 7 to 10 a.m. will be your hosts for the evening on Thursday, November 10th. And if you picked up one of their new Living the Circle of Life t-shirts, they hope you'll wear it with pride and come on down to join them on uh, November 10th at Brewbies for Music Meets Movies. All right, another thing I wanted to get to before our special guests for Rallies and Resources is a community placekeeping project that started today but happens again on Saturday, November 5th, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Mestizo Coffee House here in the Guadalupe neighborhood where Radioactive and KRCL reside. It's 631 North Temple, 631 West North Temple in Salt Lake City. And they're asking what places on the West Side reflect a sense of belonging, of culture, of history, values, and future. They want to document these places that matter to the West Side of Salt Lake City to create a treasure map, or also known as a Mapa de Nuestros Tesoros, of significant places for the community. They want to create a series of brochures, for example, murals on the West Side, to distribute in the community and a living digital map online that shares the stories of places that matter to the west side both those that are still here and those that frankly we've lost to the tide of progress as some might say so again this is happening on saturday november 5th 8 a.m to 3 p.m at mestizo coffee house 631 west north temple and if you have questions please reach out to jasmine walton Director of Community Initiatives and Marketing, Jasmine W. at nwsaltlake.org. This is a collaboration with NeighborWorks Salt Lake and the University of Utah's City and Metropolitan Planning Department. Check tonight's show notes. Check rallies and resources for details if you would like to get in on this community placekeeping project. All right, coming up on Friday, there is a hearing in town for Our Children's Trust, Utah. We're going to find out more about it with the main plaintiff in the state case. Natalie Roberts is back in the studio. Hi, Natalie. How are you doing? 
Hi, thanks so much for having us. Before we crack the mics, I was saying, when was the first time you came on? Because I feel like I've been watching you grow up. I think you were in seventh grade. Yeah. When you first came on talking about uh, climate work that you were involved with and why you're concerned. And we're going to take a, a deep dive and get to that. But you are the plaintiff for the state level case on climate change under a public doctrine, a public trust doctrine. Basically saying, you know, us old folks have really screwed it up and uh, uh, we owe your generation who's going to have to fix this something to do about it. That's really broad strokes. So we're going to get into it here. But there's a hearing coming up and joining us to talk about the basics of that and then the rally that's planned at four o'clock on Friday at Washington Square, 451 South State, right across from the courthouse. We have John Mackin from Our Children's Trust. How you doing? Good. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And can you explain for folks what Our Children's Trust is? Uh, yes, I'd be happy to. It is a uh, nonprofit public interest law firm uh, dedicated to securing the legal rights of youth to a healthy atmosphere and safe climate based on the best available science. Best available science. Because I've read quite a bit about uh, a federal level case. And now there's several state-level cases, and you were telling me before we got started that uh, there's actually a trial going on in one of those cases right now, or it, about to be? It is forthcoming, and it is in the state of Montana. Okay. And some other hearings, like Virginia? Yes, there was a hearing in Virginia uh, about a month and a half ago, and there is another one forthcoming, I believe, in Hawaii. In Hawaii. So, folks, uh, you can check out the website, ourchildrenstrust.org, but Florida, Hawaii, Montana, Utah, Virginia. And if you're listening and going, where's my state or my home state? I'm sure they could reach out, John, right? They can reach out. <laughs> info at ourchildrenstrust.org, press at ourchildrenstrust.org, visit our website, and uh, stay tuned because there will be more. Okay. Now, there is a hearing here in Utah. What's happening? How can people tune into that or show up for it? So the hearing occurs in the morning. Um, we are expecting a packed courtroom. Uh, the capacity is low. We, we want to fill it. Um, if we have to turn people away, which we might, that would be a good thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, we, we really, because of that limited capacity and for um, several other reasons, we really want to get people to come to the public assembly at 4 o'clock in Washington Square, Washington right. Square Park. That's right across the street from the courthouse. So... On Friday at 9 a.m., 3rd District Courthouse, 4th Floor Room N41, according to the press info you sent me. So arrive early. Arrive early. Cease will be limited. There you go. And then at 4 o'clock, I'm guessing you're expecting it to wrap by then, the hearing. The hearing should really only take um, about an hour, maybe 90 minutes. Uh, you, you never know for sure, but it, it, won't be, it won't be all day. We really wanted to, uh, you know, bring the community together l later in the day mm -hmm. uh, when, you know, a lot of our uh, plaintiffs are young. We want them to, you know, yeah. get out of school, be able to be there, <laughs> be able to be there without missing school. So uh, four o'clock, members of the community, some members of the press, um, you know, we have some uh, events planned. There's going to be a justice tree. A justice uh, tree. Yes. Ask Natalie about that, how that built. Um, but this hearing is a motion to dismiss, I'm guessing, and the state responding or uh, asking that question. That's what's going down. Motion to dismiss, and so that's the action that we'll be investigating at the hearing. Okay. 
So Natalie, let's talk about why you decided to sign on to this. First of all, like I said, seventh grade, here you are, 10th grader, uh, sophomore at West High. In fact, you walked over to the studios. Yeah. Good job. Um, you, why did you sign on in March of this year to be Natalie R versus the state of Utah when it comes to this issue? Yeah, so this case actually kind of started, I want to say, like, almost a year before our original filing date in March. So I actually first heard about our Children's Trust uh, in an Earth Day kind of online Zoom meeting in 2021. And uh, we had a presentation about, you know, what our Children's Trust was all about. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so interesting, like, changes actually being made here in in the court system which is like which is incredible I'd never heard of like kind of something like this happening before and about I think like a month later uh, a connection with Fridays for Future Utah whom I'd been striking with uh, reached out to me and was like hey they're thinking about doing a case in Utah would you want to be involved in this and I was like absolutely yes sign me up this is this is where change is going to be made. You're getting deep into it when you put your name on a lawsuit. How'd your parents react to that? I, I mean, since you've been doing it since seventh grade, I take it they're supportive. Yeah, no, my parents have always been really supportive of all this. And I think it's just, yeah, they've been amazing through all of this. Well, reading online at our children's trust, this is referred to as a constitutional climate lawsuit. And as youth, you're arguing that through its statutory policy to maximize, promote, and systematically authorize the development of fossil fuels in Utah, the state is actively causing and contributing to Utah's hazardous air quality and dangerous climate crisis impacts, harming the young plaintiffs, that'd be you, and violating their state constitutional rights to life, health, and safety. So as you've come along in your climate work and you start to really drill down into this. Tell me about your life, health, and safety, and why this matters enough to you to put your name on this lawsuit. Yeah, so in Salt Lake, mainly what we're focusing on is the air quality, because in the summer, we have all this fire smoke that just gets trapped in our valley, and in the winter, we have this inversion. You can probably, like, see it if it wasn't, you know, snowing right now. Um, so I think here in, in Salt Lake, air quality is one of the biggest things that we're focusing on just because studies show that like the air quality that that is present here in Salt Lake and the air that we're breathing can take years off of our lives. Well and you go to West High mm -hmm. which is within half of a mile of an interstate freeway also known as an asthma corridor due to air pollutants. Right. There's been many studies about that here in Utah but other roadways that that is on half a mile on either side and I remember I had a a nephew who, when he was little, had asthma. And uh, they're like, we got to move away from this freeway because they lived within half a mile of it. And these are the things that you're talking about. Exactly, yes. And it's like I'm lucky enough that if stuff gets like incredibly toxic and like Utah and Salt Lake is like in an, like you can't live here anymore, then I'm lucky enough to be able to like have the means to move out of the state or move out of the city or just like relocate. But some people like aren't and that's that's a huge issue, you know? And I'm guessing you've seen all the stories that the Great Salt Lake Collaborative's been doing about the fate of the Great Salt Lake and the toxic dust plumes that 
are coming off of the lake bed as it evaporates. And that's got to wrap into the conversation as well. Yeah, exactly. So I was actually involved in uh, one, of the, one of the events that we planned for the Great Salt Lake. We called it a die-in. And I was actually on the show in September about that. Um, and it was mainly about how this toxic, basically how the d- drying up of the Great Salt Lake can cause toxic dust bowls. And all these chemicals that are being released by the drying up the, of the Great Salt Lake, which is because of climate change and because of other um, kind of things that are going on within the state. Yeah. So the great, the, the dye-in that you came in and talked about, maybe you can report back on, let's digress for a minute and report back on that. Because you make these great events that get news coverage. Are you feeling like it's getting through to the powers that be, to your parents' generation, my generation, lawmakers, that um, you, you can't take this anymore? You see it quite clearly as uh, a member of your peer group that something's got to give. Right, yeah. So I know that like a lot of the events we plan try to bring kind of an emotional value to things. Like at the Great Salt Lake, having a bunch of children laying on the ground pretending to be dead, that's definitely something that'll trigger kind of an emotional response. And I guess with this case as well, like Utah youth are suing their state government. That's not something you hear every day. That's something that's going to kind of provoke something like, well, why would they be suing the state? And we must be doing something terribly wrong if a bunch of kids are suing their state. Well, and the Great Salt Lake Collaborative went to um, Owens Lake and Mono Lake in California and looked at those saline lakes and what has happened there as they've um, evaporated and gone through the same thing. And I was, I'm trying to remember the figure off the top of my head from one of the stories uh, the Collaborative did, and I think it was $2.5 billion in pollution mitigation costs. You know, someone's got to pay for that, and it's going to be taxpayers. So do you feel like the lawsuit is um, a way to get the powers that be their attention and say, we're all going to pay for this one way or another. Yes. figure it out. It is, but it's also just that that the state is violating our constitutional rights by um, contributing to and supporting the fossil fuel industry here in the state. And that first hearing again, folks, is coming up here in Salt Lake on Friday at uh, the courthouse down here on State Street right across from Washington Square, and there'll be a Solidarity rally at 4 p.m. in the evening. We're not sure what. Public assembly, I think, is, John, what you called it, right? Yes. Because we're not really sure what's going to happen at that hearing. What are your concerns going into this hearing? I mean, I think everything is kind of up in the air right now. But hopefully, if we are able to get to trial, I mean, that's definitely a next step. Um, I mean, it's probably still a ways away. If we are able to get to trial, then once we're in trial, we kind of hope that if the court ruled in favor of us that we would see like drastic changes here in the state because it the court would rule it unconstitutional and so the state government would be required to make changes don't want to tip your hand but maybe we could do a little mock trial right here and talk about what you might testify about if you got to trial because like you said uh these events are emotional please but in court Um, what would you want to impress upon a jury or if it's a bench trial, the judge? I mean, I would just like to say that youth, like me, we're going to be the ones, and we we currently are the ones that are going to have the most impact with climate change. Like like I mentioned, we have years taken off of our life because of the bad air quality here in the Salt Lake Valley. 
And I think that it's just really important to, to kind of drive that Utah youth are the ones that are going to be more affected than adults mm-hmm. just because we're going to be here longer. Yeah. I think that life, liberty, life, health, and safety, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness can be these kind of amorphous things until we talk about it um, and in court no less under oath. So I'm really looking forward to what may come of your case and the others at the state level and the federal level with our Children's Trust. But I also wanted to talk about the other environmental work that you're doing. Again, you started in seventh grade. You're now in 10th at West High. What's it been like since the school year started? Do you have some clubs going? Are your peers as concerned as you are? Yeah, so at West we have an environmental club, and I'm one of the presidents of the environmental club, which is just great because I'm kind of able to connect, like, all the environmental stuff that I'm involved with outside of school and kind of connect it uh, with what's going on inside uh, the West community. And I think I think peers like me, they're concerned, but I also think that there's not enough education about, like, the climate crisis. So I think that with more education, people can be, more, I guess, more informed about why they should be concerned. I mean, yeah. If you tell someone like, hey, there's a toxic dust, there's a possibility of a toxic dust bowl, they're going to be, you know, afraid, but they don't exactly know like why things are happening. Well, one of the things that you're doing on the education front is you have just joined something called the Salt Lake City School District Sustainability Task Force. Tell us what that's about and what the timeline is, because I understand you got something coming up this week, too. Yeah, so the Salt Lake Sustainability Task Force is a group of Salt Lake District students Um, and faculty members um, that are working towards um, achieving the sustainability resolution, which was passed um, just over a year ago by a group of students in the district. So you're meeting for the first time? Yeah, it's one of the biannual meetings is tomorrow. Wonderful. So are you hoping that being on all these committees, working on all these events, being part of this lawsuit is going to move it. I guess what I'm asking is what does success look like for you? You've already been pretty patient, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade. Is this a lifelong commitment for you? I think it kind of is. Yeah. Um, And I think especially with this lawsuit, like the timeline is kind of up in the air. So we don't exactly know like when our trial date will be. Um, But if you'll get to trial. Yeah, hopefully we will. But um, I know that like Climate change will always be a part of our lives, and I think activism, especially climate activism, will always be a part, like important part of my life. Do you hope to move into more of a stewardship perspective as you grow older, and hopefully, the world gets wiser about this? Definitely, yeah. I would love to be in a like climate or environmental related career field. Yeah. Well. I think you're com- you've been on the show about every year so far of your education, so I expect you to keep reporting in. But you're, you're also involved with Utah uh, Youth Environmental Solutions. That's one way for folks to get involved. How can people reach out to groups like that? What's the website or social that people should look for? So mainly with groups like You Yes and Fridays for Future, most of the work is done through Instagram. Um, webs- we've had a couple of webs- websites up, but um, mainly through Instagram is the best way to contact. Easier to maintain, right? Exactly. As, as, because these groups, people flow in and out of them as they age through um, perhaps activism, but it sounds like you're in it for a long haul. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, let's go back to John and remind folks what's happening, what the timeline is on Friday and how to get engaged. John Mackin from Our Children's Trust. Yes. As you mentioned, the hearing is at nine. Uh, we'll come out right after the hearing. This could be um, 10, between 10 and 11. There will be a brief press scrum. Okay. We are anticipating some reporters. Um, the attorneys and the plaintiffs will come out and say a, b- a few brief remarks <clears throat> about what just happened. And then later in the day, 4 p.m., Washington Square Park is the press assembly. Um, we uh, we did ha- have some help from some local Utahns. Uh, Dave of the S-U-W-A. Dave Pacheco, Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. That's the one. And uh, Becca of the Sierra Club Utah chapter. There we go. And uh, again, we're expecting press. We're expecting public. And uh, similarly similarly to the press scrum, we'll have the attorneys um, kind of walk through what happened at the hearing. Great. And uh, and we're, we're hoping that Natalie and some of the other plaintiffs will make a few remarks as well. There's going to be a justice tree. What's that about, Nat? I don't <laughs> actually know. You? This is new to me. So I don't actually know what that is. What's the justice tree, John? Or we got to come down to the public assembly and find out? Oh, you have to come and find out. No, <laughs> it's it uh, it's uh, it's about supporting the uh, the youth plaintiffs in this case. Uh-huh. And uh, it involves you uh, write down a message of support and solidarity with the Utah plaintiffs like uh, in, in wanting a uh, healthier and safer climate, uh, breathable air. And you uh, sort of write this message and you uh, tie it around a tree that we will have... Um, you know, marked in advance that this is the justice right. tree and you put your message on the tree. Well, thank you so much, John, for coming in and Natalie for keeping, keep on keeping on, right, with the, with your work. We expect to hear from you next week to report out on what happened, okay? Thank you. All right. Stick around. Nick Burns' conversation with author Steve Phillips coming up next. Got some good times from Jungle in the meantime on KRCL Radioactive. There was a song came on the radio, a guitar instrumental, and it changed everything. Music Meets Movies continues Thursday, November 10th with award-winning film Rumble, the Indians who rock the world. Rumble is a documentary about the far too often overlooked influence indigenous musicians had and still have on popular music in North America. Figuring out that these people were Indians, and then we started to ask ourselves, why didn't anyone else know that? From Charlie Patton to Link Gray, Robbie Robinson invented the genre. Jimmy Hendrix, the best in his field. Jesse Davis, everybody wanted him. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Rumble, the Indians who rock the world November 10th at Bruvies in Salt Lake. One screening only. Tickets at the door at 6.30 p.m. Movie at 7.30 p.m. And Dave, John, and me, Valiant MC, will be there. More information at krcl.org. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Love Promise, a partnership with local nonprofit organizations to support and strengthen our community. Now accepting applications for 2023 nonprofit partnerships. More information on Mark Miller Subaru's Love Promise and application process at markmillersubaru.com. Joining us now on Radioactive, the author Steve Phillips. His new book, How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. Steve Phillips also hosts the podcast Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, and his first book, Brown is the New White, was a New York Times and Washington Post bestseller. He writes regularly for both The Nation and The Guardian. And joining us now, Steve Phillips. Hi, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. Oh, my pleasure. You uh, you lead off the introduction in How We Win the Civil War with Isabel Wilkinson quoting Martin Luther King Jr. Um, if people were given the choice between democracy and whiteness, how many would choose whiteness? And then you recount a little bit of the January 6th insurrection. And honestly, Steve, you had me hooked from those opening paragraphs. So thank you for what I thought was a great book. Um, but I guess I would start here. How how can we all help your book reach a wider audience? And I'm thinking those people who would choose whiteness over democracy or maybe elected officials who, you know, reside in the Russell Senate office building or even like now President uh, Biden who stayed in the Blair House. Um, and I guess that's a concern is, you know, you're sort of preaching to the choir, if you will. Well, yes, y yes and no. Um, depends what how you define the choir. Okay. Um, so I feel that the, the challenge that we face is that there's not, and the reason why I wrote the book is that I don't think that there's enough uh, clarity and objective understanding of the nature and the ferocity of the fight that we are up against. And so there's a disposition to, uh, you see it with the, the, the response to the January 6th insurrection, to want to move on and to try to you know, get past that, et cetera, et cetera. There was an attempt to overthrow the elected government of the United States of America, a violent attempt, and to it, create what would have quite literally been fascism within America. If you look up the definition of a you know strongman leader and appealing to nationalist sentiments, et cetera. So, and these are people who do not play by the same set of rules. And so the people who would think, say they're in the choir and that they want this to be a multiracial democracy, that they're not on the side of this being, you know, a country that's uh, primarily uh, white nationalist, have to take us have to take a stand as part of it and also have to fight as if we are under attack because we are. And that's one of the challenges we saw in 2021 is all of this uh, voter suppression legislation was raging across the country, and there was a you know insufficient, if not tepid, response in terms of trying to fight back against that or trying to aggressively expand democracy in voting. That's the type of actions that are necessary, but you have to first understand that we are under attack, and that's what I'm trying to get out there oh, through my book. Thank you. I mean, in the book, you certainly document how Trump, starting as a candidate, former President Trump, um, as a candidate and after he was elected, certainly let the racists out of the bag, so to speak. Um, and I think we've all seen the results from Charlottesville to Arizona's, I want to say, armed voting box vigilantes. But one thing that really struck me about your book is you make it very clear that the racists have been here all along. Um, quote, systematic bigotry is still central to our politics. So take me through some of the examples that maybe you found or you find the most egregious or maybe things that were new to you from your research. So the the, the first half of my book, and it is interesting because I originally, when the New Press approached me about writing a writing a, another book, I was saying, well, let's use the Civil War as a metaphor to try mm -hmm. to describe the current political moment that we're in. It was clearly it was very you know tribal and polarized, et cetera. 
And that was in April of 2020. And then eight months later, you have people carrying the Confederate flag, wearing sweatshirts, saying MAGA Civil War, January 6, 2021, storming United States Capitol, hunting down the country's elected officials and trying to block the peaceful transfer of power. And I'm like, well, this isn't so theoretical anymore. <laughs> and so then when I was doing the work and writing the story, it, it the advantage of writing books, you get to like, get some distance and you can kind of put yourself in that moment and see about how it actually connects. And it's quite clear and literal that the Confederates, their ideological descendants, some many cases their genealogical descendants, have never stopped fighting the actual Civil War. And the, one of the things that did surprise me, which I didn't even fully appreciate, is the Civil War itself began when a candidate who was backed by black people was elected president and the losing side refused to accept the election results. And rather than accept those election results, well, one, they tried to tried to assassinate Lincoln before he could even take office. But two is they succeeded from the union. South Carolina succeeded weeks after the election and then the rest of the other six states, you know, a couple of months later. So that's fairly pertinent to this moment in time in terms of understanding the dynamics oh. of being in the Civil War. And then the other piece, and this is what was interesting, is it's actually quite fascinating to me, the dissonance between the reverence we have as a country in terms of thinking about Lincoln and his model and how uh, he, he is the leadership he offered and the fact that Lincoln was assassinated five days after the supposed surrender of the uh, at Appomattox and uh, assassinated by a Confederate white supremacist who had said, after hearing Lincoln speak, that that means N-word citizenship. That's the last speech he'll ever give. So we hold out Lincoln as this great model of how you go about uh, um, you know, providing leadership, where point of fact, Lincoln was assassinated by the white supremacist, paving the way for the South to be given back to the slave owners which then instituted a hundred years of racial segregation and white nationalism within this country. So that pretty quickly gets you up towards the modern day in terms oh. of the, the Confederates never stopping fighting. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, that started with Lincoln's vice president Johnson, right? It, it started exactly. to turn around immediately. In the book, you outlined three historic periods between that sort of end of the Civil War and I want to say about 1910. And I thought it was really insightful the way you sort of chunked up that historical period into three parts. So take us through those a little bit. I thought that was, it was an interesting way for me to sort of reconceptualize that part of history. Well, there were these, there, there were, the, there were the different periods, right? And so in the context of um, the Reconstruction era, Right. And so the immediately after the Civil War um, is you had the attempt to actually have um, reconstruction. And but even that, right, was um, um, undermined and resisted in terms of people not wanting to actually go forward with that. And so you had that attempt to move forward. And then after that, you had really much of the, the backlash to that whole period in time. Um, and then after that, then you had the, even, there was the big battle. And this was really quite fascinating 
in terms of um, the resistance to even passing the the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, um, and those constitutional amendments, right? The 13th Amendment, ending slavery, was not, um, did not pass out of the House originally, in a House that had no Southerners in it. This right. was just to end slavery. And so they had to make compromises and keep fighting for that, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that you have that whole reality. So the just you know to re kind of frame back, right? So the three periods talk about are black codes, redemption, and restoration. And yeah. so these were examples of the um, Confederates trying to fight back. So immediately after Reconstruction, they put in place all these all these laws. Kind of immediately after the uh, Congress uh, flipped in in twenty twenty one, they put in place all these laws, which were pretty quickly. Um, found to be unconstitutional, et cetera. They went, they, so those were not able to be moved forward, but that was in a very quick attempt to con continue the economic and political relationships. Then there was just a whole redemption period where they were trying to then re uh, get around things like the uh, Voting Rights Act, uh, the uh, 15th Amendment, which established the right to vote. And then there's the whole kind of restoration period where it was just full on uh, uh, restoring the Confederacy in terms of white uh, nationalism and dominance. Um, so that's really what took us from the end of the Civil War up to the turn of the century. And that lasted all the way up until the Civil Rights Movement in 1964 and 65. Yeah. I learned, uh, I learned a new disease in your book, and I want to say disease with quote marks. Um, a white invented mental illness Drapetomonia, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Drapetomania. Dra oh, thank you. Drapetomania. Um, I was I was shocked by not shocked because I've certainly read about phrenology, studying the bumps on the head. Um, my own brother was a math professor at Ferris State College, named for one of the famous phrenologists. But tell me about this other disease, white invented. Well, I heard about it from my friend, Ludovic Blaine, who's the director of the California Donor Table, and he's an activist um, from New York originally. Um, and he actually has on his Facebook pages, confirmed drapetomaniac. And it's a, it, it, it was an actual disease. It was, it was a paper that was published in a medical journal in the 1850s. And it's the disease that causes black people to run away from slavery. That's so, a disease. Yes, it was a, oh. it was a, and actually it was in one of the original medical and diagnostic um, uh, psych psychiatric books. There's a whole paper about how do you stop people from who are susceptible to this disease, et cetera. And so, you know, I say that, you know, most black people are drapetomaniacs. We do want to flee slavery. That's oh. actually pretty correct. So. Yeah, I would think it, you got to say it's not quite a mental illness. It's sort of a sign of sanity. Um, right. You also write about the Great Migration, um, and you write, quote, cities across the North got blacker. Um, and again, that's one of the largest migrations in human history, millions and millions of folks moving north. Um, I know many whites in the South thought the blacks would move back because they genetically couldn't handle the cold. But one of the things you write about that I had not thought about before was with the increased number of black voters across northern cities, white politicians had to change how they ran for office, even if they didn't necessarily change their, you know, racist voting. So share with us a little bit about how those white politicians had to account for the cities getting blacker. 
Yeah, so that's an that's a it was a key uh, step in the development of the political or the racial transformation of the political parties within the country. Yeah, and um, you know, so I mean, Isabel Wilkerson talks about the Great Migration in her book, her first book, Warmth of Other Sons. She has this great line in there about um, most black people in the South had a decision to make, which means most black people in America had a decision to make. And I was like, oh, that's so true. Would you have to say, think about it that way? It was almost all black people were in the South in terms of uh, quantitatively. And so when uh, there was the Great Migration, my grandparents came from uh, Mississippi and Alabama mm-hmm. to Cleveland, Ohio during that time period. So then you had the, the, demogra- the demographic composition of the urban areas, Cleveland, Chicago, places like that began to change and so then the politicians had to account for and be responsive at some level to racism and racial inequality. And so that put the black votes more in play and it upset the political balance of power. Because historically politics in this country, and unfortunately too many people on the Democratic side still think of it this way, has been a contest between white people. And it's been progressive whites fighting against conservative whites over the whites in the middle. And there weren't enough people of color, certainly who could vote, who made who made a difference in terms of this calculation. But then, as as the different, you know, uh, even up to the the you know President uh, Truman to a certain extent, but as the different you know mayors and, and particularly mayors in some of these cities began to really start to reach out to uh, attend to b- black voters and black issues, it it changed the political balance of power and and, and forced both parties to have to contend with uh, issues facing um, African-Americans. And then that affected Democrats who would primarily, de- the the Confederates were all Democrats. And they Democrats, were the yeah. party of the Confederacy. And so then as some of those Democratic Northern elected officials began to embrace black issues, it then upset their white supporters and kind of put that into, 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 into play and started the, uh, exodus of some of the more conservative whites towards the Republican Party. Yeah, it just it's it's a fascinating time period, and and I know I know I can't I can't keep you here all day and talk about every chapter of your book, but I was really intrigued. You do look at pop culture, certainly after that World War One period, the period we're talking about politically. We saw the film Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind. Um, and before we get into talking about part two, the how we win part, because I'm really happy, I'm really glad that part is in your book. But I was really struck by the portion, you, you write about this woman from Germany who moved to the United States, and you quote her, in Germany, there is a national sense of shame about the Holocaust. Here in the United States, there is no shame. And I had to actually put your book down for a minute and think about that, because certainly in Germany, they have monuments of remembrance for the Holocaust. Here, you know, cities have to fight. People have to fight just to have sort of a monument to what went on 100 years ago, let alone take down the the General Lee monuments. So before we get into part two, I wonder, should we or can we or do you think we should draw a distinction between this ongoing United States systematic and structural racism and what we see now as an ongoing or a renewed sense of like obliterating U.S. history. Do you draw a distinction between those? 
Well, it's that's also very that's a very uh, unbroken uh, course of action as well. I mean, this whole you know attacks on so-called critical race theory are nothing new. So the mm. United Daughters of Confederacy were actual daughters of Confederates. Was created in the second half of the nineteenth uh, century. Still, very active organization with eight hundred chapters around the country, multi million dollar operation. They were very aggressive around policing what was taught in the schools in the South in the early 20th century and really trying to uh, sanitize and whitewash uh, the Confederacy, the Confederate states, and basically white nationalism and white supremacy. And so that's been a long standing um, operation. So you take that, and then there were the, the widespread. Um, creation of white private schools after brown versus board of education which in that takes you all the way up you know until almost the 1970s so there's been a whole parallel education system in this country that has denied and the reality of this country's history and recasted and whitewashed white supremacy and so there is a very uh, ongoing uninterrupted effort to it, including, as you mentioned, in popular culture, Gone with the Wind, there was a 2018 survey by USA Today that's the sixth most popular book in the country. Gone with the Wind is a sanitization of white supremacy and mass murder. But people, they've turned it into this, you know, romantic, compelling story rather than what it actually was. So the, that's what I talk about in the first half, but the, the Confederate battle plan. And this issue of distorting public opinion is a core component of that, and it's an uninterrupted course of activity since the Civil War. Yeah, I, I guess for me personally, I wish more people saw that through thread, that more people saw that attacking CRT, um, that, it, that it's really of part and parcel the same, that it hasn't really changed that much. But let's talk about how we win. Um, I'm, I'm really happy that we had that in your book. Um, you call it a liberation battle plan. And, and as we mentioned, you started the book talking about the insurrection on January 6th. And we've certainly seen violence from white supremacists. But liberation battle plan, um, this is a battle, isn't it? But in what sense do you think? Well, it is, as you know, we were talking about, it's a battle between is this primarily a country that's for and run by straight white Christian men, as was originally, not just was really intended, as was originally codified in their earliest laws, the 1790 uh, immigration law, uh, said that to be a citizen, you had to be a free white person. And that was aff affirmed by the Supreme Court all the way up through the, the mid 20th century. Or are we going to become a multiracial democracy? And that is the on, and this is the 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 point that Isabel Wilkerson conversation that you know I opened up with was in was talking about the rise of white domestic terrorism within this country and the statement being that um, the people said they wouldn't stand for being a minority in their own country and so that this is they're going to have to choose and that's really what January sixth was about you had a very unapologetic. Uh, white nationalist president, Tony Hasty Coates, so he's written uh, eloquently about it in the Atlantic, America's you know first white president. We're going to keep that man in power, even though we lost the election, or are we going to honor the democracy? So that fight goes on. And then the second half of the book, I show five case studies where they we have won 
largely in those places that were bastions of the Confederacy, Virginia, Georgia, Arizona, Harris County, Texas, and San Diego, and talk about the liberation battle plan, the essence of which is expanding democracy and getting more people to vote and transforming the electorate to look more like the overall population. And the places where that has happened, led by people like Stacey Abrams, led by groups like Texas Organizing Project, Arizona Wins, they've transformed the composition of who was in the voting pool. And that is what then led to uh, Arizona and Georgia defeating Donald Trump and electing U.S. senators to flip the whole United States Senate. Yeah. And of course, now we see the pushback against that. This is Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. The book is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacists for Good. Our guest, author Steve Phillips. This book is just out from the New Press, which if you don't know their work is a public interest nonprofit publisher. So you have these case studies, and I have to say that's extremely uplifting. Any thoughts about how it seems like these wins that you, you know, the five you write about aren't perhaps as well known as they ought to be? Um, no, if they were, I wouldn't have had to write the book, right? <laughs> and so that- Well, thank you, but yes. you know- but that is the the struggle and the challenge um, for progressives, and you know, I would even also for you know for the Democratic Party, or really for anybody who wants us to be a multiracial democracy. There remains a uh, debate or division around strategy, and so I still feel like too many people in the top levels of the progressive movement, top level of the Democratic Party, do not understand or believe that there actually is a majority of people who support. Uh, progressive multiracial uh, democratic um, agenda. And they fear if they're too strong on that, that they're going to lose all the support, people are going to go fleeing from them. So most of the money, time, investment, uh, and attention goes towards trying to uh, persuade what they see as these swing voters in the middle. And they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on television ads rather than investing in the civic engagement groups such as new georgia project which stacy abrams created such as new virginia majority and texas organizing project that's the proven work of transforming an electorate to be able to win elections but it's not the conventional wisdom in terms of progressive or democratic strategy right now and that's going to be one of the big debates that has to rage in order for us to win yeah i mean you you spare <laughs> I guess I would say you spare no words for the Democratic consultant class. Um, and I think you just gave us a little bit of some of the advice you'd give them. But I do think we see that from Biden, right? That you sort of, you see this running to the middle, afraid to maybe go too deep on any sort of truly progressive ideas. Um, well, I just on that, I, go ahead. Really quickly on that, I will say absolutely in terms of 2021, it's actually very frustrating how, um, uh, tepid their responses were to these forceful attacks and the i think frankly naive belief that they're going to somehow win over people by showing they're bipartisan i will say in the past uh, few months there have been some far more encouraging signs from the Biden administration going heavier and more deeply and aggressively on student debt relief and explicitly doing that to send a signal to young people and people of color giving that speech in philadelphia calling out uh, Trump and, and and the MAGA crowd for attacking democracy. That's a far stronger uh, stand than Biden and, frankly, most Democrats have previously taken. Yeah. 
To me, it seems like the conservatives, the hard right folks and many Republicans have really been thinking long game. And sometimes I feel like the Democrats and the more progressives only think short game. Um, but then I tend to kind of resist sports metaphors. Um, but maybe there is a little bit more of that. Uh, President Biden's supposed to give a speech tonight, um, and we'll see how that might play out. A few minutes left, Steve Phillips. Um, you mentioned these case studies. You focus on Texas, Georgia, Arizona, some states. But for an example here, San Diego, you devote a chapter to San Diego, uh, loved by former presidents Nixon and Reagan, um, if we want to speak about the hard right. Um, you write about California Governor Stanford and Reagan and Governor Wilson. I remember the ballot measure to ban people speaking Spanish in the workplace under Governor Wilson. That was not yeah. all that long ago. So take us through, for an example, your story about San Diego. Well, San Diego is important and because it's an example of California and California's transformation. And that is very important because there it's a lesson and case study for what is happening in other places, such as Texas and um, and Florida. And so people forget that California was very conservative. It was the launching pad um, of Nixon and Reagan. And San Diego was like the cornerstone of a lot of that, very, very reliably read um, area politically. But through the type of work of expanding democracy, civic engagement led by Andrea Guerrero and the Alliance San Diego organization, they registered and organized and mobilized thousands and thousands of people, brought them to the electorate, and have flipped the local political uh, uh, arrangements. Now that the, there's, there used to be a Republican majority on the city council, it's now an eight to one Democratic majority. And that has also upended the political balance of power in the state of California, is where you could re formally rely upon San Diego for conservative politics. Now it's largely a progressive voting bloc. And so that's why, Cal with, the, with the exception of one uh, very famous movie actor in 2006, California has not elected a Republican statewide um, in almost 20 years now. And that's because the electorate has transformed and, Cal and San Diego was at the, at the cutting edge of that process, doing the type of steady, methodical uh, civic engagement and, and voter empowerment work that's required. And that's a core component of the liberation battle plan. Yeah. Well, thank you. It, it's indeed San Diego and all these case studies, the states you talk about, certainly document that change is possible, even though, you know, the rhetoric I think we get in the dominant news and, and all the cable these days tends to not be. But again, I think they're watching out for their bottom line. Only got time for a couple more questions, Steve. The epilogue of how we win the Civil War, you look at aspects of forming and maintaining a new social contract. And one of the dedications of your book is, quote, to all the writers who've gone before, end quote. And to me, this offers an acknowledgement that invention and creativity are social acts, not purely individual. And it seems to me that gets a little bit at sort of what your entire book is about. So what were you thinking with that dedication to all the writers who've gone before? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And so I um, I, mean, I was both an English and Afro-American studies major in college. And I you know, literally have hundreds of books that I've studied to understand this country. And I have them in a bookcase that you know was <laughs> literally behind me looking down on me. <laughs> But I also drew inspiration from those um, books and these stories. And so uh, June Jordan's work 
around in the 1980s and the columns that she wrote and the books that she wrote um really she has a uh essay you know something like a sonnet for phyllis wheatley where she talks about what it must have been like to go to a slave auction and i kind of draw upon that for the opening of the virginia chapter which is where slavery began in this country and so i was trying to honor those uh, writers and the examples that they had led before. Um, I, uh, James Baldwin, you know, talks about, he has an essay um, about Lorraine Hansberry and the role of a leader and of a, and of a strong voice who's not necessarily fully respected and how you bond at the barricades with people. And so I drew from that to uh, describe the situation in Texas where Michelle Tremillo and Ginny Goldman came together as allies. So I was both inspired by and tried to weave together these uh, lessons and stories um, from these other writers that have come before, because they inspired me. And I think that they illuminate uh, the challenges that still are before us. Well, Steve Phillips, it was a great read. How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy from Good, just out from the new press, a public interest nonprofit publisher, the author Steve Phillips, a New York Times, Washington Post bestseller author, columnist, leading national political thought leader. Steve, thank you for this book. Um, your previous book, of course, also a bestseller, Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution has Created a New American Majority. We can read your work, of course, in The Nation and The Guardian. And you also, and I haven't checked this out yet, but your podcast, Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. So I will give that a, a listen as well. Not every other Thursday. So <laughs> well, as well. Steve Phillips, thank you for a book. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, as a college professor myself, it's always amazing. And I don't mean to be vainglorious, but when I read a book and I can learn new things, I just think it's fantastic. So thank you for your work. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for reading it. it really, I mean, you work so hard on something. It's good to see that's landing and people are appreciating it. So I really. Oh no, it's it's fantastic, and I and I wish you a lot of success. What's next? Well, it's building on this. I think that it that there is this battle over within the progressive side around what is the strategic direction. Mm. Really trying to understand how we win and how we don't win. That now that we have the book as a example and have the evidence in it, we still have to engage in the debate around hmm. which strategies are going to prevail. So that's going to be what a lot of the work is going forward. Well, if it's another book, come back and chat with us again. I'd love to. Thanks for having me on. Author Steve Phillips in conversation with Radioactive's Nick Burns. I'm Laura Jones, and that's our show. Thank you to all of our guests and to you for plugging into your community during Radioactive weeknights at 6. Democracy Now! is next. KRCO, Salt Lake City. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.